You're listening to Tove, a podcast about the good place and Jewish ideas. Hey, it's Sean Spiros Avet and Shmuley Yanklowitz. Hi, Shmuley. Hey, John. I have been so excited to get you on here from the beginning, as we'll talk about. But but just to start, if you could somehow, in a sentence, describe where you do your rabbiing. Well, I don't do it anywhere. I'm a big believer in decentralization, so I, I'm not anywhere in particular. But I do live in Scottsdale, Arizona where I lead a number of different initiatives around Jewish learning and social change work. You want to say what a, one or two of them are? Awesome, yeah. So I'm the president of Dina Valley Beit Midrash, a pluralistic Jewish learning and leadership center, which has recently moved national, and Uri Litzedek, which is a social justice organization doing a lot of national work, in particular at the border, and Yatom, supporting foster kids, and Shemayim, which is a Jewish animal welfare initiative. So, for the purposes of the podcast getting to know you, the first question is, which of the main characters on The Good Place do you think you're kind of most like? Oh, my goodness. I wouldn't even know where to begin with that. On on a certain level, I would love to be aspirationally someone like Jason, who is just (laughs) simple and happy and ignorance is bliss. But I'm so far from him. The obvious answer that probably all your guests would say if you asked them that question would be cheaty. I mean, who doesn't want to be the philosopher type who is <laughs> incredibly, you know, analytical and, and thoughtful? And yet he's plagued with a certain level of anxiety and doubt as well. I, I guess on a joke level, since my English name is Sean, I'm a little bit like Sean, although I don't really want to, be the, head, don't really want to be the head demon. And so it's funny, these 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 archetypes, it's, it, 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 we're, we're, you know, it's kind of like the four children at Pesach. We're all of them, you know, a little bit of each of them is is me. But yeah, the yeah. show that I felt like was partic- particularly resonated as like the person I am. Each of them is is such a fascinating figure. But Shidi is probably closest. All right. Yeah, that's good. Many There's a subset of rabbis who have to get that. Yes. <laughs> this year. We're all everything. And uh, but Sean, I didn't I didn't realize that was uh, and I love Sean, particularly his voice, as I've said many times, and, <laughs> uh, and his podcast about the good place, the, the one produced by NBC that he hosts. So that's that's cool. Do you have any story as to how you discovered this show, The Good Place, and got to watching it? Well, my wife is my entire guide on pop culture, Shoshana. If, if it, I, I would never be like, hey, I heard of something on Netflix, let's watch this. I mean, maybe on a rare occasion. She just guides me towards things. I'm very skeptical of TV in general, unfairly skeptical. And she pulled me towards this. And as soon as I thought there were theological and philosophical intersections, I just fell in love with it, with the show. And as someone who was very driven myself by death, and by imagery of Olam Haba, of next life, and and by thought experiments, by theological thought experiments. I was just totally taken in and grateful to Shoshana for pulling me in on this show. I have said how, for me, there is a, a huge jealousy at the beginning of the show that they can do this kind of stuff and get a mass audience for it when we, well, I'll speak for myself, when I you know, can't even get a, a small local audience sometimes for these things. And, and yeah, and, and, I will, and I will preview our conversation in a way by saying that you were one of the, the first guests I wanted to have. And I, if we didn't actually mention, we certainly in the show notes of episode one of this podcast have you linked as, as I think the uh, kind of premier rabbi engage with utilitarian thinking oh, wow. and so we're gonna we're gonna dive into that and that's clearly why the the episode we have here together yeah. you know so, just before that i was gonna say that 
you know, my father doesn't know so much about Jewish learning, but one piece of advice that he gave me that was really good. He said, do stuff on the afterlife. And I was like, afterlife, that's not what Judaism is mostly about. We're this life, you know, yes, there's afterlife, but we're really, and, and so I did it. And the room was packed wall to wall. I mean, every time <laughs> I do afterlife, all the Jews fill the room. It's like there's an obsession with this issue. And it's not just Jews, of course, it's a human thing. So. But we'll see. Maybe, maybe our conversation will take us to a bit more. I, I, I've inched like slightly more toward an interest in that. I'm convinced the show doesn't have anything to do with the afterlife, but I could be wrong. And of course, it's not about what you know what the sh- show actually what they intended. Yeah. Uh, but our, our use of it. So Shmuley, you can give us the title and the creators and the summary of this episode. Chapter thirty-five. Don't let the good life pass you by. Written by Andrew Law, directed by Dean Holland. In Alberta, Canada, Michael and Janet find Doug Forsett, who has lived according to the afterlife point system since accurately hallucinating it while on magic mushrooms in the 1970s. He lives simply, self-sufficiently, and charitably, but miserably. Obsessed with points, he does anything to make any person or creature happy, but does nothing for himself. Michael advises Doug to live as he pleases, but Doug refuses. The four humans wait at a bar where demons led by Sean capture them, planning to take them as well as Michael and Janet to the bad place. Janet fights off the demons, her powers restored by contact with the portal, and she forces them back to the afterlife. Before being dispatched, Sean gloats that the humans' loved ones will go to the bad place as will Doug. Eleanor tells Chidi that they were in love and that she might be again. Michael suspects the point system is truly flawed. He intends to investigate the afterlife accountants. When more demons arrive, Janet transports Michael and the humans to her void. Ooh, nicely done. I was going to say, in a way that for this podcast, you you are the Doug Forsett, whose picture has been on the wall since the beginning, but we don't actually get to meet until this episode. And we'll get more into that. But just uh, before we hit that storyline, just in kind of a fan-robbing mode, is there anything that just particularly tickled you about the episode, just for any reason? Well, I will point out, and maybe this will, will jog, uh, will cause something. I have to say that this may be the result of over-intense watching of the show, that I noticed that Michael identifies himself and Janet to, to Doug Forsett as being from the Calgary Times Examiner. So I, of course, wanted to see what was on the actual badges that they were wearing. And it actually says Times Gazette, which I thought... I wonder why, because that is neither of those things are the names of the papers in Calgary, which, at least according to Wikipedia, are the Herald and the Sun. So, yeah. uh, that's just I, random. I, I I love that. I you know I just I am so deeply fascinated by the Doug Forsett character because while I do know some people relatively like him, I think that this persona in the extreme really pushes us to think about some incredible issues and i was just particularly tickled by his relationship to the snail yeah and because in our family we struggle a lot with the insects that enter our home and his relationship to this snail not only stepping on it but what he was going to do to then do to shuva to kind of rectify this damage he had done yeah, I was thinking at a couple levels. One is that I, I did have a snail when I was 
younger, I don't remember if it was junior high, which which did come to harm by climbing out of its tank that I had for it, and I didn't have any other other pets. And I, a, a suggestible part of me thinks that there was something involving scotch tape or or its, uh, but it, it didn't die by it didn't die by crunching. It had some other thing. And I was just recently on a beach in New Brunswick, in Canada, where my my daughter took me, my my younger one, who's so into insects and doesn't let us kill any bugs in the house and it was full of snails empty shells and alive ones and it was it was like a basically it was like a through her eyes it was a minefield there was absolutely no way i couldn't cause you know snail genocide while while out there and i felt so awful i <laughs> but it's interesting because i will so I'll, I'll push on you with this because i think of you in a way as as rabbi forsett you have given one of your kidneys. And you have talked about Peter Singer. In fact, when you came to our synagogue to Temple Beth Abraham in Nashua and talking about that, that's who you referenced and kind of thinking about that. And I'm curious how, you know, you related to this character and also think about, is there a Jewish integration textual or conceptual that, that you have? And, you know, whether you you can funnel it through through some of the Doug stuff or, or just take us there generally. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. So, I want to start by saying that I don't think at all that one could argue that the utilitarian philosophy in its purest forms could be equated with Jewish philosophy. Jewish philosophy is incredibly broad. Even utilitarianism is very broad. Nonetheless, I do believe that utilitarianism is an important ethical strand that can be found in Jewish thought and has to be taken very seriously on many levels. And not to its extreme, but in some cases as the dominant thrust. And so let's just remind ourselves of something like what Peter Singer will say. Let me give kind of one of the the most extreme examples that I like to share and I probably shared with your congregation. The case where we know we can buy a malaria net for $3 in Africa. And when I choose to buy a cup of coffee, instead of donate those $3, that according to a singer-like philosophy, I may be considered to be engaged in an act of murder because I have choose the luxury item of a coffee over the saving of a life. Well, one might say, if there was someone dying at our at our feet, of course we're going to save that person over the coffee. Who wouldn't? Only a terrible person would enjoy their coffee while someone's dying at their feet. And we can say in an era of globalization, that we can't pretend that we don't know the other person is on the other side of the world. We can't pretend that we can't intervene or engage with it in in our interconnected world today. And so it ought to be no different as, as if someone was at our feet. And so taken to its extreme, we can't engage in any luxury at the expense of, of a human life. And how can we truly say that we value the infinite dignity of a human being if we're willing to drive a fancier car, take vacations, go to movies, buy nicer clothes, uh, go out to restaurants, do things like this. And so I think that's actually a really compelling argument that has a lot of flaws in it, but is nonetheless a really compelling argument. And taken to the case of a kidney, if I know that thousands will die today in need of a kidney, how can I justify keeping a luxury organ when someone else will die uh, in, in need of that? And so how can we not live like Doug Forsett? Of course, not in the way of trying to achieve a point scale, because it is hard to imagine if God is good, which is certainly foundational to my theology, the benevolence of the the divine, 
that such a God would operate by such a, a point system or want us to operate by a point system with such a motivation. Nonetheless, the idea that we are here to maximize happiness and reduce suffering is in many ways very compelling. And that utilitarian model is very compelling. Nonetheless, there's many problems here with the Doug Forsett model. Let me point out just a few, and then I, I, I want to I turn it back to you to engage. Yeah. First of all, one of them is, how can this all be about pleasure? Is pleasure really the goal of life, to maximize pleasure and reduce suffering? Is that really what life is about, such a, such a, a scale? Secondly, I think you can see through this boy who's taunting him, Yeah, you know, part of the problem is he is making this boy more cruel by, by essentially reinforcing his cruelty by trying to give pleasure to this boy. We can't educate like that. We can't parent like that. That's a second. Let me offer just a third, actually a third out of four, possibly. The third is that that we have dignity too. We have dignity too, not just others. Now, utilitarianism doesn't argue for dignity. When I emailed Peter Singer about human dignity, you know, sanctity of human life, he said, I don't believe in that. Mm. And so that's not what it's about. That's why he's also an animal rights activist in ways that are comparable to his human rights activism. But I believe we people we have dignity and and we ourselves have dignity. And so we have to treat ourselves with dignity and not just torture ourselves as well. That self-compassion is related to our compassion to others. And just lastly, the impossibility, going back to your walking through the room of snails, the impossibility of living a life where we don't do any damage, we don't do any wrongs. Because we are complicit in systems of oppression, we are complicit in systems of injustice, we are complicit in um, causing suffering to others in the marketplace, in the messiness of the political reality we live in. So there's are just, are just four of, of, I could probably list 10, but just four of the reasons why there's a real problem here, even why I find the system so compelling. But let me pause. Let me pause. <laughs> I, I'd like to hear your engagement with what I Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think about whether this episode ultimately is kind of taking a stand, all these stands that you're saying against the against the point system. Obviously, they're saying we thought Doug Forsett was the man, and it turns out not. And of course, we now know retrospectively that when Michael presented the point system in, in the very first episode, it was all, it was ridiculous. But in some sense, the, the demons, at least, seem to buy into it. And uh, as we'll learn, the, the account like it does seem to be kicking around there, but Michael doesn't believe in it anymore, and so we have that. And uh, and they gave it a chance. I have to say, selecting the the amazing Michael McKean to be the Doug Forsett was was cool, and it's making me think that for the younger generation who have no idea, for that matter, who Mary Tyler Moore, the snail, Martin Luther, Gandhi, Tyler Moore, as the most exemplary name possible for. <laughs> for a heroic snail like i wonder if those references obviously go i guess we'll have to put them in the show notes for the younger the younger <laughs> audience i guess i guess they're pointing out these things but and we talked about how the point system actually hasn't been sort of a big deal that Michael or the humans haven't been pushing that, or even Chidi, who has never been a utilitarian. They haven't been pushing this for a long time. But but again, back to, as I say, you as a person who takes this kind of, let's say, flourishing, maximizing to be serious. Do You, you said that you can see it in Jewish sources. Is there, other than sort of implicitly, is there a place that you point to and say, this seems to be about that? Is it just about the, the pikuach nefesh, the saving life principle? Or is there a place where this gets taught as something you might operationalize? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So just one one point on what you touched on on the point scale before the utilitarianism. I think one of the closest areas I can think of to the point system is is in Hilchot Teshuvah. Maimonides famously says, the Rambam famously says, that we should view our next action like it tilts the scale towards mm. the redemption of the world or the destruction of the world, as if there are these weights, there are these points where God is deciding whether the world should continue to exist or not, like at the flood story or like in stone, kind of weighing up how many good people, how many evil people, how many good deeds are happening. Now, that's not on an individual level of afterlife, but it is kind of on a collectivist level. And entering the high holidays, I think there is kind of a sense of divine judgment, so to speak, of of the collective. And so I do think there is a place for this sense of kind of counting up, you know, the mitzvot and the ave wrote the good things and the transgressions. So too, I know many people, if they're thinking about marrying someone and feel undetermined, they kind of create a, you know, a pro and con list. Our brains do think to some degree in these quantitative measures. Of course, we can't dismiss these qualitative factors as well, but we have these metrics of success, these metrics of account of achievement. Synagogues think about number of members, right? Our budgets think about revenues versus versus expenses profits versus losses. And so, you know, there is something to think about tapping into how this human psyche has been conditioned. But on the utilitarian front, wow, you know, you know, a few things here. One is that when we used to talk about pikuach nefesh, saving life, we meant quantitatively. The affirmation of life means saving life amount of number of years, number of minutes. But then, you know, Yitz Greenberg kind of shifted this towards quality of life as well, doing things in the affirmation of life to enhance a quality of life. And that's that's a fascinating shift that's worth kind of unpacking, you know, and so how do we kind of measure up this quality of life versus quantity of life? And I think that another area that this plays out is in Pidjon Shvuyim, you know, redeeming captives. If I am captive, how much should my community pay to redeem me. And we know that if it's a higher amount, the captors are more likely to capture other people because to, you know, have such a reward in the future. And so we want to kind of weigh that up against saving this one individual life. And so that's kind of another paradigm. Think about like, how much would we pay to save one life? How much should we pay you know, and this, this of course, plays out in Israeli-Palestinian negotiations as well. How many terrorists do you trade back, Palestinian terrorists, alleged terrorists, I guess one might say, in some cases, in return for IDF soldier? And and then I think there's kind of the human versus non-human paradigm of, like, how, how much do we value a non-human sentient being versus a human life? To some degree, when we have a pet, and we get them vaccinated, we buy them dog food or cat food, we spend money on them. Once again, going back to the singer paradigm over a human life, to some degree, one might argue we're choosing their life over another. And yet we can't live in a, in a world of, of pure, just by our basic needs. And so I think that one of the limits we see placed there is on this model of giving Maser, that we have this obligation to tithe, and yet the rabbinic limits on that the rabbis don't want to see us go too far to risk our own well-being, our own security or stability. I mean, the whole conversation about tzedakah itself is is so fascinating. 
But I do think that the utilitarian model is also strained. I think it's much easier to make a case for the deontological model, the sense that every human is an end in them, the sense that we do what is right versus what is wrong, regardless of the consequences. I think it's much easier to make a case for the other two of of the main three brands, deontology and virtue ethics. Virtue ethics saying that we don't do what is right based on a rule or based on the consequence, but based on the character we wish to uh, cultivate, such as Rambam's sense that we should give a million coins a million times rather than have the deepest impact giving more coins to one place because we want to cultivate virtue. And so the utilitarian model, I think, is in some ways the most strained, also based on the humility and the powerlessness that we can't predict our consequences, that God is in control and other forces are in control beyond what I predict. All we can do is what we think is right, regardless of a consequence. And so the Doug Forsett model looks absurd. Like It's almost like this absurdity of trying to weigh out what our consequences are because we can't predict that. All we can do is live by principle. So I'm having a couple of sets of thoughts as you're talking. One is... (laughs) kind of reframing the question of donating the kidney, for instance, which I'll loop back to. But the other is, there is some of Doug Forsett, which is lovely, like the part that says, I'm going to walk to Edmonton to give $85 to a snail charity is, you know, absurd on one sense, but it is an act of principle and character, as and probably probably more than it is an act of great impact on the on the species of snails, you know, in, in actuality. I was thinking, this is a tangent, just that the, the two things that I think were kind of clever in the episode in juxtaposition is, and I, I hadn't thought of this one till till just the recent rewatch, is that Jason's game of Jacksonville-style pool, in which you declare how many points there are, there are no rules except the ones that you make up, and you get to announce how many points and you get to play the game however you want, which which I thought was a super clever way of, of in a way, mocking any points-based system. But the other thing actually about Doug Forsett as a, as a character is that the first thing that happens in the episode is we hear this, this Mama Cass song, which gives the episode its title, Don't Let the Good Life Pass You By, which is all about these other things that can't be measured. And you wonder what about that in him is, is, is there. But what I was thinking is that, you know, when he says, would you like some more water? Water or one of my kidneys, like he, or like not or one, like what can I do for you? Can I give you some more water? Can I give you one of my kidneys? Those are two different offers, <laughs> and they're and and we appreciate them not as utilitarian offers. I don't know if you want to speak, but I mean, I just I'm going to put you on the spot because you have spoken personally about this. The decision to to donate a kidney maybe isn't defined only in this utilitarian terms of I'm going to save X number of years of this person's life if what you're pointing out is all these other flaws of the utilitarian. And I wonder how Doug can make this offer. Like, how is he not given one of his kidneys by now that he can give one to (laughs) to Mike? You know, I think there's this profound question for us on what am I ready to give and what am I not ready to give? And where do I believe something so deeply that I'm willing to to sacrifice anything? Uh, Most of us who are parents would be willing to sacrifice our lives for our child. Now, that doesn't feel like an ethical decision. It feels almost biological. In, like It's so deeply ingrained in us as parents. I, I, I can't imagine meeting a parent who wouldn't go under the knife for a child. I mean, it just so feels so obvious and natural in a way that it doesn't always feel as obvious for, as a, for a child, for a parent. And so, And yet, some of us, we know what we can give is in money. 
Some of us can give in our time. Some of us can give in our empathy and our compassion. Some of us can give with our body to some degree, like, like a mother g- giving birth or like a person donating an organ or like a person who is volunteering with their with their body. And it is such a profound question of what is it we want to ultimately give in the world. And we know alongside that is, on the one hand, the stronger we are, the healthier we are, the more we can give. But then we get into self-care worship in the sense that when does that become too much about myself? When do I go overboard in my self-care in the name of serving others? I know far more people who go further in kind of the self-indulgence in the spirit of giving to others than the opposite, those who are necessarily depriving themselves. I, and give an example also of this idea that the, where it's problematic. For me, in political economics and economic theory, the trickle-down economics theory, that if I, as the boss, am wealthier, that will be better for my workers. That will be better for society, and it's all going to trickle down from me. If the top is stronger, that's going to be better for everyone, that those who are richer will naturally become more charitable. In some sense, they will hire more people. And from the data I've seen, I think that's kind of a flawed argument. Uh, sometimes actually, you know, we have to be willing to actually weaken ourselves. So someone said to me when I was contemplating the, the ethics, the philosophies around kidney donation, you know what, couldn't you save a lot more lives, not risking yourself and just go on a speaking tour, go give a hundred speeches about kidney donation and you don't have to weaken yourself and you'll maybe save more lives than you will by risking yourself. And I thought that was kind of a compelling argument in some ways. On the other hand, I think we got to put some skin in the game. I think that it's very hard to be a compelling spokesperson for certain causes if we don't put skin in the game. And so we can't put our skin in the game on every issue. You know, we can't go become a soldier and become an organ donor and become a firefighter who's running into fires and become, you know, the tireless counselor who's there in the middle of the night to, you know, support people who are suicidal. I mean, there are so many ways to save lives and we're going to have to choose which ways we can we can participate. And so, is so it, yeah. yeah, so I would say, like, is that analysis partly a self-assessment in utilitarian terms? Is that a Jewish thing to do or is it kind of, you know, a a guesswork or kind of a, a, a broad survey? I mean, partly so I say mm-hmm. this because you, as you say, at the border, animals. I mean, there's a lot of Doug Forsett in you as you do that. I do notice that Doug Forsett, you know, like his human relationship seems to be with the, the sociopath kid. It's not really a relationship. And then he's got the, I guess, the the plants, some of which he inherited and, uh, and some of which he's cultivated. And he has this... Uh, knowledge, I guess, about the world that came to him out of, you know, in a drug and state that is, you know, was a, re- a revelation, but not that didn't that didn't connect him to to people. But on, on a good side could be like what you said at the beginning, that once you have that awareness, you can't, you can't not experience that. But, but you know, you're, you're a bit, so I'm just gonna say, I mean, you, you're a bit of a happiness pump yourself, you know, and yet you are not articulating it in uh, right now, in utilitarian terms, you're articulating it much more in, you know, in terms that uh, kind of tailored to you. Although you could interpret that and say, this is the, this is the points, this is the kind of value I can create in the world. Not that not the points I can earn. Like that part clearly doesn't seem Jewish, but that part doesn't seem like the point of the Jewish teachings. But an assessment of the magnitude in a, in a broad, not a not a rounding to the point one sense, does seem a bit like what you're talking about. Yeah. You know, so, you know, two personal points on, on, on that, because I appreciate that so much. I think that's similar to Doug Forsett, and this is something to caution 
ourselves around. I think that what I experienced similar to him is some degree of isolation, some degree of struggling socially, because relationships become in some ways more difficult when we kind of try to push ourselves to live by certain standards. All of a sudden, like, who wants to host the vegan? You know, when, (laughs) (laughs) and I'm not the type who's going to spend my Sundays on the couch watching football. And I don't want to be critical of those who do that. I don't judge folks who do that. But like, I find it more difficult to relate to people who aren't living with a sense of urgency within kind of a utilitarian model. Now, all that said, I'm also, the other part of it also is plagued with a sense of self-doubt and hypocrisy. Like, geez, if I really believe in this sense that, that you know, we, we're self-accountable in such a way, like, I feel really hypocritical in all the ways I'm not living that. Like, we drive two minivans to drive our kids, and yeah. I'm on airplanes all the time for traveling and, and the like, and, and there's a whole bunch of, you know, non, less sustainable practices I'm, I'm involved with, and and those things, like in a TD sense, you know, and in a Doug Forsett sense, really, really plagued me. And so I, I saw that with Doug, and I kind of see that with myself, you know. And I think that in many ways, like you said, like the guide in question for me at the gates of heaven has been: Did you take more than you gave? Mm-hmm. It's actually a points question. Like, did you actually, based on your power and privilege in the world, give more than you took? And I'm convinced I took more than I gave, and that's really scary. But according to the rabbis and the Talmud, as you know, those are, that's not the questions that are entertained at the gates of heaven. You know, the most famously, how did you do your business? And did you procreate? And did you set aside time for learning? And really profound Jewish questions, but not not that. Hmm. I wonder if you've had a, a journey of how you've integrated the Peter Singer as you have been learning and teaching. Was there a time where you were like, yeah, no, either that that's superior to some Jewish teaching or that articulates some Jewish teaching, or now, as you're saying, that has to be contextualized within some other Jewish teaching? Yes, great, great. So, so let me share one of Singer's contradictions that I think resonates for me very much as well, where... He has been very critical about our end-of-life care for seniors in particular, and in ways where he's been heavily crit- critiqued, rightfully, I think, around people with special needs and how he values their lives. So, too, he thinks we should more or less let people die who are draining our healthcare system. If roughly one-third of healthcare costs go to end-of-life cases, why are we prolonging those? Now, as someone committed to Jewish law, I have a big problem with the idea of pulling the plug in lots of cases where he would be very comfortable with it. But ethically, I think he has a point. Nonetheless, when his mother was ill, as I understand it, she needed a very expensive care to prolong her life some months. And he engaged in that. And when asked, how could you do that? How many lives could have been saved instead of your mother's? He said, yeah, but she's my mother, right? (laughs) And so too, like Uh... when we were foster parents, as foster parents, we have struggled with how to care for our own children really well alongside the demands of foster kids in our house. And one breaking point for me amidst that was hearing my own biological kids crying outside the room where I was putting foster kids to sleep and being like, how can I do this? Hmm. Like, yes, I want to support more children in the world than just my own. And yet I really do value on a re- on a relational level, not on a philosophical level, philosophical level, my own biological kids more than children that are not my biological kids. How can I, you know, 
have an akedah, put my own children on the altar, so to speak, in the name of this higher ideal. And so like a singer, like I really struggle with the relationships that matter more. So too, I, I, I would never say I think a Jewish life matters more than a non-Jewish life. I don't believe that. But on a relational level, as a rabbi, I have chosen to serve Jews more than Gentiles. I view that as more of my job description in the world. And so I want to help all people. And yet I do choose my family over non-family. I do choose Jews over Gentiles. I do choose humans over animals. And those calculations are very non-utilitarian because they're relational. And so that's one you know area where I've, I've really chosen that. But then on, on the level of tzedakah, when I do look at philanthropy, I do look at maser, tithing, I do think about impact. Where can there be more impact for more numbers rather than just what is on my affinity cause? I want to think about the number of people impacted, in some cases, even more than the depth of impact. And so I do kind of enter that. And I think a lot of us do. I think a lot of philanthropists do as well. You know, I, I think that one of the ways to pick up on what you're describing as setting your self-deployment is that some of, I think what you do, and I, I will even allow myself to say about myself that I think of some of what I do also as a rabbi serving the Jewish people is serving the world through the Jewish people. If we have a language that we can more easily communicate with through Torah, then we speak in that language and hope that that people go out. And you do serve other species and, and, and people who are not Jewish via an influence and a teaching through the Jewish community. And in a way, part of this, obviously part of this podcast project, as I originally set it out, was to see if activating some of the Torah part within Jews or Jew curious people would be a way ultimately of, you know, contributing just a, a little bit to what people take out in the world generally. You know, again, the, originally I thought that the bar part of the episode here, I thought was just fun stuff because the you know the truth the Doug for set part it wasn't it wasn't the funniest stuff in the world it was it was cute but whatever but but in a way that's it it is commentary and I was looking at this line where Eleanor because she like Doug for set in a way is the one human who has a little more awareness of what's going on so when the demons show up at the bar she you know is in the middle of this conversation with Tahani about her love life and she says you know that the demons have arrived and Tahani says Eleanor just because these people are wearing cheap leather and stonewashed denim they're still part of the queen's realm which is a sort of a great written line. But Tahani, of all people who has, you know, her teshuva has been to stop thinking of the, the rich as better, I guess. And <laughs> uh, and she is articulating these points that there's, you know, a lot. Now she's, of course, wrong. There are actual demons. And there's a sort of catharsis, I want to say, in 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 kicking their asses, which, uh, which most of them do, and especially Janet. That was wonderfully unexpected. And I wonder if that's also part of this commentary. And we can extend, like, a remind, I don't know if it's just a reminder that that is a human thing. We do have some beings maybe they're people demons whatever who we just we just cannot integrate them into our calculus at all of course i, I could be stretching way too far but but i'm really i'm really finding how much of you know as you loop back to that we can sort of put some of these utilitarian tools to use in a spiritual framework in a jewish framework recognizing it can't be the ultimate judge and i think what you said was that the other philosophies are are in a way better articulations of how Torah is trying to do things. You can't fit it into either of those boxes, but there is a utilitarian strand. Doing more good is still, you know, whatever that means, maybe not in a accounting fashion, but doing more good is still somehow a profound Jewish uh, principle. Yes. Yes. I love that. And 
as a mystic, I do very much believe there are demons all around us. But but around us, I mostly mean within us, our shadow spots, our vices, our traumas, the spots within us that are really limiting our potential and are really blocking our ability to achieve meaning, happiness, impact, holiness. And I do think it's a very productive activity to, and I, and I love how you picked that up about, about element to kind of grow spiritually on the level of awareness to kind of see what's happening around us, the facades and the superficial dimensions that are really blocking us from the bigger questions in life. And in some ways, I think the teshuva process is about stripping away those exteriorities to reach that interiority. It's like that famous quote about about Michelangelo of how he, you know, carved the David. And he said, I didn't carve it. Um, I didn't create it. I chipped away at the parts that weren't David to get there. That actually there's all these parts on our neshama, on our souls that have kind of colored our sense of identity. To circle back to where we began uh, in our conversation, actually before the podcast today, you and I, that sense of who am I and the world tells us who we are in many ways. And that identity is very much cultivated externally. And yet the teshuva process of stripping away those external layers to kind of find out more deeply who we are about and then aligning, aligning the, uh, that ontological reality with with the teleo- uh, teleological reality. Like our sense of purpose is connected with our deeper sense of being of who we ultimately are in the world. And then here's where Sartre really kind of pushes us to live with good faith that we actually live with the freedom of not not living the role that society tells us we are, to be a good mother, a good Jew, a good waiter, but actually determine what the good is for ourselves and learn how on an existentialist level, how to align our lives with that. And I think that's what this show is about in many ways. It's to move away from the binaries of the good place and bad place, but they have to kind of relive our lives every day in a Groundhog Day kind of way, mm-hmm. in a purgatory kind of way, in like a, ref- a, a constant reliving of our lives in a way that has to move us to a deeper sense of introspection of what are we here for? What am I about in the world? Mm-hmm. So, Shmuley, is there anyone you want to call out as an early influence who got you thinking about ethical philosophy? I really want to celebrate synagogue rabbis like you, because I actually think the role of sermons, the role of Sunday school, the role of the synagogue community, one of the most powerful roles among so many others is a space to ask big questions. And the synagogues I grew up as a kid, similar to the great one that you lead, are ones where I was pushed to think about identity and about morality and about uh, our purpose. And those early childhood sermons were profound for me. So yes, I could point to high school teachers. I could point to college seminars. I could point to immersion experiences as young adults. But I think the earlier roots of all of this was really the sermon and the Sunday school classes where there was a heaviness, a serious to them. And I want to push back against the idea that Judaism is about fun. The more fun we make this stuff, the more the kids are going to love it. Yeah, there's a, there's a role for that. But I think the heaviness of it, the seriousness of it, the weight of those questions that I was exposed to early on, on Yom Kippur, 
Like that's what really stuck with me. So Kula Kavot to you. <laughs> there was a rabbi at a reform temple that I spent a few years at in seventh and eighth grade. And I would meet her for coffee and ask her my list of 20 questions. And there were some times she would give answers, but other times she would give back questions. And I think that relationship was really important for me that I could do something like that. And that I could see that answers weren't simple, you know, that that many answers were going to be personal and were going to be broad. And so, you know, I want, I, I have a lot of gratitude to her. Shmuley, it is great to talk to you both for the surprising to me, actually, directions that the conversation took and also your way of modeling what some of this integration of rabbinic, Jewish, and broader philosophical thought is. Great to talk to you, Shmuley. Rabbi Johns, you are one of my great rabbinic heroes of someone who just lives with such intentionality and builds community and relationships across denominations and across faiths and brings a philosophical approach and a deep kindness to the work you do. So I'm so honored to be in your podcast. And well, I, love, a, I love that you have an amazing podcast like this. And you, thank you for including me. You've been a great teacher to me too, Shmuley. And maybe before the series is over, we'll get to do this again. Okay. And that's all for this episode of Tove. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and give us a good rating and tell anyone else you think might be interested. You can find show notes on our website, tovegoodplace.com, including concepts and texts we refer to and deeper dives into the ideas we discussed. You can connect with us on social media at tovegoodplace and send us comments and questions to tove at tovegoodplace.com. Shmuley Yanklowitz is on Twitter at Rav Shmuley and Instagram at Rabbi underscore Shmuley, S-H-M-U-L-Y. And his many projects and podcasts are linked on our hosts page. I'm John Spirasavet at Rabbi JS3 and RabbiJohn.net, J-O-N. If you're listening as we're releasing each podcast, it looks like we won't make the goal I said previously of finishing up all of Season 3 before Yom Kippur of 2022. But that's okay, since Judaism teaches that Teshuvah is for all year and not just the high holidays. And we have a couple more episodes to share before the Jewish New Year starts. If you're looking for a community or some learning for this year's holy days, drop us a note and we can help find a good place for you. No pun intended. Feel free to connect with my synagogue in person or on Zoom at tbanashua.org. Thanks again for listening. Now go learn more about something good. Bum, 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 bum.